Good Sunday morning. This is the Arts Section. I'm your host, Gary Zydek. Welcome to WDCB's Arts and Culture magazine. Every week we spotlight creative people, events, and ideas in the Chicago area arts community, while also fostering broader discussions on music, film, theater, and other creative endeavors. Support for the Arts Section comes from the League of Chicago Theaters. On today's program, I'll catch up with the people behind the Chicago Latino Film Festival as they prepare to welcome audiences back after a two-year pandemic pause. The dueling critics Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel will join me to discuss Victory Garden's timely world premiere, In Every Generation. Later, I'll have a story about a West Suburban Museum that's presenting an Andy Warhol exhibit next year. And I'll talk to the author of a biography about the one and only Jeff Goldblum. That's all coming up. Thanks for making time for arts and culture this morning. Back in April of 2020, the Chicago Latino Film Festival was the city's first film fest confronted with the then burgeoning COVID-19 pandemic. Two years later, things aren't completely back to normal, but festival organizers are excited to be welcoming in-person audiences back. There's also virtual options for those cinephiles not quite ready to be back in a theater. So much has happened over the past two years, it's hard to remember those pre-pandemic days, but virtual programming wasn't something widely available 24 months ago. Chicago Latino Film Festival founder and executive director Pepe Vargas says he and his team learned a lot during those first few months of the pandemic. We postponed the festival not because we wanted it. That was a situation that we had no control over with. And then we started thinking because we had plenty of time to think. And so look around what will be possible. And we had to reshape the whole thing. We have uh, 65 features ready. Uh, we had the program printed and it was a big, a big loss. And the, the virtual platforms start coming out and, and we engaged rather quickly with one. And we ended up being the first festival in Chicago that went virtual. The good news was audiences responded to the virtual format. The feedback that was was unbelievable how good it was. Thank you, thank you, thank you. It was very reassuring how much we are needed and how much important is what we do. And so living with that, it really is it's an energy that has no equivalent to money. But it's something that is so precious, a golden opportunity that we did not miss. And so we did it. It was a very successful festival. And then we learned a lot how to do this. I sat down with Vargas as he was making final preparations for the 38th edition of the Chicago Latino Film Festival, which officially kicks off on Thursday, April 21st, with a special drive-in screening. And we kind of used the metaphor of a, a film. A film is good when all the elements are well synchronized. Moving all the pieces together, what with the objective of giving people something beyond their expectations. And that is, that is what we've been doing for so long with the aim of really having the greatest possible result, which will give us a challenge to make sure that the next one is even better. 
I also recently caught up with the festival's chief programmer, Sophie Gordon, at the Instituto Cervantes to learn more about this year's fest. Gordon says after going completely virtual out of necessity in 2020, the festival introduced some drive-in screenings last year. This year is more of a true hybrid with virtual, drive-in, and traditional in-person screening options. Our festival last year, we did almost entirely virtually, but we had a handful of uh, screenings at the drive-in. And that was kind of the first foray into in-person festival events that we had done. And that was last April when people were kind of just starting to get vaccinated and it felt like a safe way to be in person with our audiences. And it felt amazing to be back. And so we knew that at the very least we could do more drive-in events for the next festival. But after, after last year's festival, we felt fairly confident about being able to put on an event safely in person in the theaters, you know, pending any COVID updates that would happen over the next year. And so at the same time, while we were excited to return to theaters, we also wanted to kind of ease our way back in and create a hybrid festival experience so that depending on what was going on at the particular time of the festival, as well as basically people's comfort level, our audience could enjoy the festival in a variety of ways. So that's why we came up with this idea for the hybrid festival in which we have in-person screenings in the theater at the Landmark Theaters. We have drive-ins like we did last year at Chi-Town Movies in Pilsen, and we have virtual programming. So almost all of the films are available virtually. That way, everything's just a little bit more accessible to folks who might not feel as comfortable going to the theaters just quite yet. And so that's something that we kind of came up with right after last year's festival. We were just so excited to go back, but wanted to still offer the option. You know, we're still in the pandemic and we want to offer a safer option of folks watching things at home. After each festival ends in April, uh, I generally spend a good part of the summer doing research. Um, so we're a festival that both takes submissions. We have a submission platform where people can submit their films to us, but we also do a lot of research about what's out there, what might be a good fit for our festival, and we reach out to those films. So I spend a lot of the summer doing research, looking over film festival programs from around the world, around Latin America and the US for films that are eligible and could be a good fit for the festival. So that's kind of what the summer looks looks like for the film festival itself. And then in September, we start taking submissions. And that's when we kind of mobilize our, our programming team, our film selection committees. We have two film selection committees, one for feature films and one for shorts. And I kind of facilitate those two committees. And when we get films submitted to us, whether it's because we reached out to them or because they submitted directly to us. We take all of those films and I kind of send them out to members of our selection committee so that we have a number of people who have watched everything. They give us really you know, extensive written reviews. And so the fall is our viewing time. So we take in submissions during the fall and we're constantly viewing submissions throughout that whole period. And that's a very fun time for us. I mean, it's like, we all love watching movies. And so, and then in, Around early January, we kind of, we stop getting submissions in December. In early January, we start kind of getting together, meeting with our selection committees and starting to make decisions. Um, and so that's kind of how the selection process works. Um, it's most busy in the fall and early winter. And yeah, it's a really, it's a really interesting and crazy process. And usually by the end of January, early February, we have our program in place. 
And then what are some of the things you're looking for in the films that are selected? Do you have a set of guiding principles that will help navigate the curation process? One of the main things that guides us is wanting to have as expansive and diverse of a program as possible. And that means a lot of things. I mean, we, you know, the International Latino Cultural Center, we are a pan-Latino organization, and so that means that we want to, in our programming of films, we want to represent as many of the countries that we represent in our organization across our programming. And so, you know, some countries uh, that we represent have a lot bigger um, and more active film industries than others, and so some countries will have more films that will be programmed, for instance, Mexico, Argentina, Colombia, Spain, Brazil have very large film industries and we get a ton of submissions from them. But for the most part, we really try and create as, as even of kind of a distribution of films from different places as possible, including places where, you know, perhaps we don't get as many submissions or see as many films every year. So that's one thing that's very important to us. Our program is very large. Um, it's smaller now than it was before the pandemic. Uh, this year we have 50 feature films and 36 short films. But it's a large program and we really want to show our audience as many interesting, diverse, new, different stories as possible. And so that can come from the subject matter and also like who the stories are about, but also who is telling those stories. We want to get stories from all different kinds of communities. And then is there a, a baseline criteria as far as the, the films that are eligible? Do they have to come from a Spanish-speaking country? So the countries that we represent are the Spanish and Portuguese-speaking countries in Central and South America and the Caribbean, and also Spain and Portugal, as well as the U.S. And so it's a very expansive and inclusive number of countries that we are trying to represent. And within each country, obviously, there's a huge diversity of communities and people and stories to be told. And that's something that we really want to share each year are, you know, stories that our audience may have never heard before, something new that they could learn about a community they might not know very much about. Um, and so that's something that is very important to us and trying to, uh, trying to share as many stories as possible, especially from marginalized communities and voices. And this year we have an incredible number of LGBTQ films, of Afro-Latino films, indigenous films as well. And that includes like a variety of languages so that our audience can have an amazing learning experience or be able to identify with stories themselves. So there's this geographic diversity and cultural diversity. Does it ever like thematic? Do you want to make sure like different types of films are represented or does that not enter the picture? Absolutely. We try and uh, touch on as many themes and kind of styles and genres as possible. Um, every year we have a handful of horror films, which, you know, necess don't necessarily appeal to everybody, but we do have some horror fans who like to come to the festival. This year we actually have a, uh, one of our four drive-ins is a midnight movie screening, kind of calling back to the era of midnight movies at the drive-in in the 70s. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a Bolivian horror film oh, that we're really? very excited about. Wow. Yeah. So we try and get as many genres as possible, as many styles of filmmaking. We have fiction documentary, we have hybrid fiction documentary films as well. We have a great number of animated films this year, more so than in previous years that we're really excited to share. An animated feature and a number of shorts. Yeah, we really want to offer something for everybody. Our program is large, our, our films are really different and uh, offer a variety of viewing experiences and we want 
everyone to be able to find something that they love at the festival. If you're just tuning in, this is the arts section. My name's Gary Zydek. I'm talking with Sophie Gordon, the programmer of the Chicago Latino Film Festival. If you're not quite ready for an in-person screening, almost all of the festival's selections are available virtually. Almost all of them are. There are only three films that are uh, not available virtually, and those are three of our four films that are playing at the drive-in. So um, because they're at the drive-in, because it's a little bit of a unique viewing experience, we really want to encourage people to come to the drive-in, especially because it's a little bit more of a socially distant uh, viewing experience. So we're really excited about our drive-ins, our opening night film, which is a Panamanian film called Plaza Catedral. The centerpiece screening is a Mexican film by an indigenous filmmaker, Angeles Cruz, and that film is called Nudo Mixteco. And then the closing night film, is a Chilean film by Francisca Alegría, which is called The Cow Who Sang a Song Into the Future. And that same night, we do have that uh, midnight movie that I mentioned earlier, the Bolivian horror film Blood Red Ox. That film is available virtually, but just for two days. So the rest of the films that are playing, I believe that is 47 films uh, of our 50 will be playing virtually. And all of the shorts will be available virtually as well. You touched on the opening night, centerpiece, and closing night films. Those are always special, and I know it's impossible to pick favorites from the rest of the field, but is there a, a hidden gem that you're especially hopeful audiences check out? There's one that I actually had the privilege of seeing on the big screen uh, in Mexico in the fall, and it's a Brazilian film called Medusa, and it's a very interesting uh, it's a very interesting kind of near-future Brazil. There's this movement of Brazilian film. There's a lot of kind of like near-future dystopian films being made in Brazil right now, much in part due to the political situation there right now. And it's about this kind of near-future, very evangelist Brazil in which a group of ultra-conservative religious uh, teenage girls kind of form a group of vigilantes. And the film is about two girls in the group who kind of have an awakening. It's super colorful, very fun, great music. It's beautifully shot. It's a very interesting film, and sometimes uh, sometimes our Brazilian films go a little bit under the radar, which is why I like to I like to mention them. But that's one that I can think of off the top of my head. But I really love all of these films. Sure. It's so hard to choose one yeah, to yeah. talk about. It's like <laughs> picking one of your favorite children, but. Uh, and then, so just using that film, Medusa, as an example, is that something that will get distribution after the festival? Because I often read reviews and reports from the big film festivals like Sundance at Toronto, and sometimes I'll read about uh, a movie that, that gets me excited, and then I won't hear about it ever again because it doesn't get distribution, and who knows where it ends up. Uh, for something like Medusa, is that something that might be hard to find after the, the festival? Actually, that film of all of ours is actually distributed by a local distributor, Music Box Films. And we love wor working with Music Box. We've had films with, we've collaborated on films with them in the past. And since it's Music Box Films, they will have, definitely have a local theatrical release, hopefully at the Music Box Theater. So that's, that's like a coincidence <laughs> that that one was Music Box. But yeah. how about like, uh, you know, some, one of these other films that's made in, um, you know, in Argentina, and then after the festivals, is it hard to find some of these? Some of them, yes. I mean, we we program such a variety of films that some of the films are, on the bigger side, they had big premieres and will, you know, get a U.S. theatrical distribution at some point. The process typically takes kind of a long time. The 
the whole thing has changed a little bit in the pandemic slightly because a lot of these films are going to streaming and they'll be available on streaming services like HBO Max, um, movie, things like that a little bit earlier than perhaps a theatrical release might have come about in the in, before the pandemic. But some of our films that are more independently made, produced, and distributed, um, those might be harder to find eventually. And so it really kind of depends. We have a lot of both. Um, but that's one of the reasons that we really encourage people to come out and see things at the festival, because it might be a while before there's another opportunity either to see the film locally in a theater or to stream it online. That was Sophie Gordon. She's the programmer of the Chicago Latino Film Festival. The 38th edition officially kicks off on Thursday, April 21st and continues through May 1st. You can find more information and a complete festival schedule at chicagolatinofilmfestival.org. <laughs> En el barrio La Cachimba se ha formado la corredera. Allá fueron los bomberos con sus campanas, sus direras. Thanks for spending some of your Easter morning with me. Quick reminder to check out theartsection.org. That's the program's website. Also, if you want to get in touch with a story idea or maybe have a comment about something you heard, you can reach me at gzydek at wdcb.org or on Instagram and Twitter with the handle at onairgary. And you are listening to the Arts Section. I'm Gary Zydek. Joining me now remotely are the dueling critics, Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel. Good morning. Good morning, Good morning, Gary. Good morning, and happy Easter to all our listeners who observe Easter. Happy Passover to those who observe Passover. Right. I was thinking this weekend uh, can almost be considered the center of the spring holiday season in Ramadan is taking place this month. Many people are celebrating Easter today, and Passover started this past Friday evening. And it's that Jewish holiday that's the backdrop for Victory Garden's world premiere in every generation. Written by Ali Vetterby, the play was the 2019 winner of the National Jewish Playwriting Contest. It's directed here by Devin DeMaio. And every generation spotlights the Levy Katz family as they sit down for their Seder dinner. But as the title kind of implies, this is a multi-generational story. And Jonathan, we'll turn to you and you can describe the, the premise in more detail. But the, the play drops in on the Levy Katz family at four different times over the, the course of centuries. Uh, it does, though mostly it's in the uh, the 20th and 21st century. I don't want to say more because it might be kind of sort of a bit of a spoiler in the, in in the, in the terms of the the theatrical <laughs> staging of it. But there are four scenes that are spread over two acts, and we meet basically three generations of women who, like most American Jewish families, and that's who we're dealing with. Like most American Jew Jewish families, these women are struggling with Jewish identity and values and the commitment required to pass Judaism to the next generation. The burden is more intense because the founding generation, who at the beginning of the play are elderly and well into their 80s, the grandparents, um, Paula and David, 
they are World War II survivors. And not only that, they are of a, of a, a reasonably uh, small ethnic subgroup. They are Italian Jews uh, and who emigrated to this country, came as refugees. So they are Italian-American Jews. As I say, World War II survivors. Their only child is a daughter who, when we first meet her, is uh, in middle age, and she's quite ambivalent about Jewish traditions. And she passes on her ambivalence to her two daughters, the young adult granddaughters, whom we also meet. And they have a lifelong sibling rivalry, which is one of the play's constants, uh, sometimes provocative, sometimes amusing. One of the daughters is adopted, and she's the one, the adopted daughter, goes all in, becoming, before the end of the play, a Chinese-American lesbian rabbi, which sounds comedic, but isn't really uh, isn't so. Now, uh, I, I, I'm going to throw it to you in just a second, Carrie, but uh, something maybe you could give your reaction, because it struck me that for people who are not Jewish, this world premiere is like a dive into the deep end of the pool, whether you can swim or not. It plunges viewers immediately into a Passover Seder without explaining ceremonial details or translating Hebrew prayers. Um, what was your reaction? You know, I, I have to say, at one point, my partner leaned over to me because he went to see the show with me, and he said, so Seder is basically Jewish Thanksgiving. <laughs> and I think he was referring more to the occasion when everyone comes together and, you know, it, well, as, as they put it with Festivus in, in Seinfeld, the airing of the grievances takes place, which is, you know, not necessarily a Thanksgiving thing, but maybe it is. I didn't find it in any way um, hard to suss out. Um, there's also Italian and Hebrew spoken through, at various points by the characters through the course of the play. There are some, you know, super titles so you can kind of make out uh, at, at critical points what is being said. But I feel like it's clear enough in the staging that I, I, I never felt that I was removed from the action or not being invited to be fully present. I think it is worth noting, before we go much further, that Victory Gardens has done something really interesting with this staging, too. Instead of the proscenium that they usually have at their downstairs biograph main stage, they have opened it up so that there is seating on both sides. Uh, most of it's still you know, in the normal audience side of the house. But uh, behind, at the back wall of where the stage normally would be, there are also seats. And the idea is that we are sort of silent witnesses to this dinner. And I thought that was highly, highly effective. That was indeed. I wanted to note the scenic designers, Andrew Boyce and Lauren Nichols. Absolutely. Were responsible. Basically, they've made an arena theater out of it, an oval arena, and uh, which is a wonderful shape. And inexplicably, it's fringed on all sides with sand, which we don't understand until the final scene of the play, the right. fourth scene at the end of Act Two, and I'm not going to give it away. But up till then, the play, uh, as you have suggested, Carrie, has been centered around a dining room table and chairs suitable for ceremonial meals, for family debates, and even some singing. And because, you know, people sit on all four sides of a rectangular dining room table, the arena, the oval shape, let's Let's you know means that no matter where you are in the audience, some members of the cast are directly facing you. You don't right. just get their backs, right? Yeah. So that was a, yes. I I think I, it's a, a very I, effective I, staging. Right. I think what's really effective in this play is 
the idea that, you know, they're celebrating, but, you know, the grandmother, played beautifully by longtime Chicago actress Carmen Roman, Paula, is, you know, kind of cautioning. She's like, yes, we're safe here for now. Don't get too comfortable. You know, we didn't think it could happen to us. It happened. It could happen again. And it's worth noting that the first scene is set in the spring of 2019, just a few months after the terrible uh, massacre at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh. So there is this idea that there is growing anti-Semitism. There is violence. We can't assume that just because we've made it to the United States that we are safe forever. And without giving anything away, indeed, you know, there is a growing sense of of fear, of oppression. Um, and every time you hear, we hear a knock on the door during these scenes, <laughs> I felt myself jump a little like, oh my gosh, what does that knock mean? I think that's one of the more effective continuing threads in Viterbi's play, that it's not just generational trauma, it's not just, you know, inherited fear. There is reason to think this may not work, you know, we may not be as safe as we want. The liberties that we take for granted now can go away. So I think that's the little cautionary thread that's woven through along with the, you know, the, the Seder, which is the celebration of being freed from bondage in, in uh, Egypt. Yes, uh, yes, indeed. And uh, you're right. I mean, the, the play is very specific in one scene in particular, uh, in Act Two, uh, about the uh, uh, apparent growing resurgence of anti-Semitism in the United States. Um, because I'm Jewish, it's difficult for me to assess you know, not whether the play is uh, accessible to non, non-Jews who are in the audience, mm-hmm. but the appeal of the play for audiences who may be completely unfamiliar with Jewish traditions or holidays. And I'll go with you, uh, Carrie, and uh, and your companion, saying that it wasn't a problem. I, I do want to confirm, however, that the play definitely captures the generational tensions and conflicts specifically over religious identity, that play out among assimilated Jews, not just in the United States, but virtually everywhere, everywhere in the world. It was, you know, the deep sense of assimilation and security that lulled so many German Jews of the 1920s into the 1930s into what eventually became their tomb. You know, the absence of sons in this particular family, we meet three generations of women and only the founding father-grandfather, but the absence of sons only intensifies the debate about continuing Jewish values and traditions and family, which is an, an interesting thrust for play right. to take. And it's yeah. interesting to know that the father in the family, uh, the, who would be the son-in-law of the older generation, the, the husband of Valentina, uh, Valentina is, uh, Valeria, I think her name is, is not present. He is a rabbi. He is not present because he has chosen to go off with another woman. So there is that sense of betrayal that, the, you know, the, the, the person who is supposed to most embody the, the, the values and the beliefs is not there because he has chosen something else. And that has some ramifications for the daughters. Um, I will say one thing that I felt was not as fully explored as it could have been is the, uh, the heritage of Devorah or Dev, the youngest daughter who is, uh, I know if she's the youngest, but she's one of the daughters she is one who's adopted. She is adopted from China. There is reference to her going back to China to look at her heritage. We get hints that she has done that, and it hasn't perhaps shown her what she needs. But I felt like that was sort of left deliberately shrouded. And I wasn't sure if that was because they felt that it would be too, like if the playwright felt that would be further complicating an already complicated family situation to bring in even more of that. But I did feel like I wanted to know more 
about her role. Although, as you said, Jonathan, correctly, there is this sibling rivalry that sort of plays out through all the scenes um, and the idea of who truly is the inheritor of the family traditions, yeah. who is taking I, care of the next, who, who's going off while somebody else stays home to take care of, you know, the aging family, which is certainly something most people in families can relate to. That's a, that's a pretty common, you know, conflict that has erupted. Absolutely. Um, I, I liked everybody in the cast. Uh, you, you noted that uh, veteran actor, wonderful actor Carmen Roman plays Paola, the grandmother. Uh, Paul Dillon is her husband, David. They are the refugee generation. And they lead, really, those two, a small uh, but very capable ensemble. Uh, their daughter and their two granddaughters are played uh, quite passionately by Ellie Katz, Esther Fishbein, and Sarah Lowe as the as the as the Chinese American lesbian rabbi, <laughs> uh, and uh, I I really enjoyed uh, everyone's work. And without giving anything away, I will say for me, the last scene felt a little not entirely necessary. I felt like things had wrapped up pretty well. It's an interesting departure, but I don't know that it deepened my understanding of the characters as we had met them. There's a bit of a tonal shift, and I again I'm, I want to be. You know, careful for our, for our listeners here. Uh, I don't know how you felt about that, Jonathan. If you also felt it was, did it work for you? I guess is what I would basically ask. Well, it, it, it definitely was a total total <laughs> shift, absolutely. <laughs> and I guess it worked for me as a as a type of coda. It was almost like a a it, it's 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 a little lighter in tone than mm-hmm. though there's a, a serious of underpinning to a very serious and biblical uh, uh, from the Torah, you know, um, there's a, that, that undertone to it. But it's a little lighter in how it's played than the other three scenes of the play. And that was a tonal shift. And it was almost as if I thought that the playwright, uh, Ali Viterbi, was trying to end on a slightly more upbeat True. Yeah, yeah. Like, I, I, I think like that's fair Seder, to say. Like the Seder play that followed, you know, the Greek tragedy. Right. That, that I do have to. I have to say, I did love uh, early in one of the earlier scenes the, uh, you know, the response to the one of the four questions that are asked at the Seder. It's like they tried to kill us. They didn't. Let's eat. That's the old joke about all Jewish holidays. You left out one ingredient. They tried to kill us. God saved us. Ah. <laughs> you know, one thing, this is not about the play or the production specifically, but I, I, so I'm, I'm making a little shift here. Uh, Victory Gardens, you may have noticed, uh, Carrie, I'm sure mm-hmm. you did, Victory Gardens Theater has eliminated printed programs, uh, perhaps to save trees, which is what <laughs> they tell you when you ask, but perhaps to save dollars. Now, either way, I think that this is a serious mistake. Audience members want information about the theater, the company, who's the artistic director, Mm -hmm. who runs it. They want to know about the season. Um, And they deserve to know who the players are, what actor plays whom, and what the names of the characters are. Uh, And surely there is a low-cost, one-page cast list uh, that they could print up that would be an easy solution. To this issue, but by eliminating the program completely, they are uh, maybe they're saving trees, maybe they're saving money, but they are throwing away a you know a major uh, 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 
conduit for information and promotion of the theater company itself. True. And I think people do like to have them as souvenirs as well, you know, so I think it, I agree with you. It yeah. might be nice to have that option, you know, maybe one is available to you if you ask, because not everyone will take them, and many people do recycle them afterwards, but... Um, yeah, I, I do agree. You know, and this is not just in theater. We've seen this with restaurants. I was just at a at some place last night where you know the menu is on. You get the QR code, or they will give you a menu if you ask. You know, but not yeah. everyone wants to be you know squinting at their phone over dinner. <laughs> Contrary to what we often right. see, I think there are people who would prefer to just put that away and be able to, you know, do it the old-fashioned way. But perhaps that's because I I'm such an old-fashioned girl, as you know, Jonathan. So well, and and I'm even I'm even more old-fashioned boy than you are, an old-fashioned girl. Um, and you know, not just about everyone has a cell phone these days, a mobile mm-hmm. phone, but not everyone has a data plan and and easily conveniently knows how to take uh, a, a photo of that of that of that mm-hmm. uh, hashtag and expand it into the program information. Uh, and that's what they're relying on, and I don't think that that is a smart decision. But that has nothing to do with this production. Right, uh, and, and again, I was so happy to see the, the seating arrangement that they did, and that was, I think this is the first time they've ever done something like that at Victory yeah. Gardens, and I, I hadn't even thought of it as a possibility, but now that it's been shown to us that it is, I think it's uh It'll be exciting to see if you know what else they might be able to do with with that kind of configuration or something similar in the future. This is the, the first piece we should say this is the first piece that's been presented by Victory Gardens in the main stage space since the uh, since the COVID shutdown, and it's the first piece produced under the auspices of their their artistic director Ken Matt Martin. Um, they did do an earlier show this season, but it was in the upstairs uh, Richard Christensen yeah. Theater. So. Um, and I'd wondered why that show wasn't being done downstairs, but now that I've seen, uh, in every generation, I'm sure it's because it took some doing to kind of, you know, get those seats out, move things around, and fully realize the vision, uh, through, uh, of Ali Viterbi and, and David DeMeo's right. production. And, and because it's the first, you know, one back on the main stage, all the more reason that they need to have some promotional material, meet our new artistic director, you know, something like that. Uh, they didn't even have photos and, names of, of, of the company in the lobby, which is another thing they could do if they're not going to hand out a program. But enough. I've spoken from my soapbox, and the fact that I am right is neither here nor there. <laughs> but I definitely think seasonally it's a, it's a very good choice for them. You know, it's funny, right before the show, I was talking with uh, somebody across the street in a bar um, and uh, we were, uh, who was Jewish, and he was asking about the show. I said, well, I haven't seen it yet, so I couldn't tell you. But And he kind of had a similar question to you, Jonathan, like, how do people who are not Jewish learn about Jewish traditions? And I have to say, and I don't know if any of our listeners would remember this series, but there's a wonderful series of children's books from about the mid-20th century called the all-of-a-kind family, and that is where I learned about all the Jewish holidays. It followed a group of five little girls in the Lower East Side at the turn of the last century, the early, early, you know, 1900s. Their father was a peddler or ran a junk shop, and it took us through, all, you know, Passover, Purim, Hanukkah, through everything. And, you know, as a little Catholic suburban girl, that is how I learned about Jewish holidays. And I have to say, they sounded really good. <laughs> the foods are wonderful, you know. You don't get a roast ham. But that's okay. <laughs> I, I'm that's not a big. Okay. Ha- I, I gotta say, I'm not a ham fan. Gonna say it right now. Not a big fan of the ham. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> no. All right. 
so I guess we uh, we both think that this is a thoughtful play. Yeah, and, and Viterbi is uh, a younger well playwright, I think, yeah. too. So it's yeah. it's an interesting you know it's an interesting choice, and um, I think some there are some wonderful. I, I think the performances just really carry carry it for me. Um, I wasn't familiar too much with um, the the actors playing the younger women. I had seen. Eli Cass, Paul Dillon, me, Cameron, yeah. Carmen Roman, and a lot of things, but I'll, I, I'll look forward to seeing both uh, Sarah Lowe and uh, Esther Fishbein in future shows because they are—they really nail that very tough dynamic between the sisters. Victory Gardens world premiere in every generation continues through May 1st. Gary, Jonathan, thanks so much. Oh, you're, you're welcome, most Gary. welcome. Always good to talk with you guys. We wish our, our Christian listeners happy Easter, our Jewish listeners good Yom Tov, and as you said, this is also, Gary, this is also Ramadan. And so to our Islamic listeners, we say uh, Ramzan Mubarak, a blessed Ramadan. I'll see you both next week. Listen, if there's one thing the history of evolution has taught us, it's that life will not be contained. Life breaks free, it expands to new territories, and it crashes through barriers painfully, maybe even dangerously, but life uh, finds a way. You're listening to WDCB. This is the Arts Section. I'm Gary Zydig. This is Jeff Goldblum playing piano on his 2018 jazz album, The Capital Sessions. But most of the world knows him for his acting, starring in giant blockbusters like Jurassic Park and Independence Day, as well as light-hearted fare like Igby Goes Down and the Grand Budapest Hotel, and many of us of a certain generation remember him from his work in the 1986 remake of The Fly. Now you tell me, am I different somehow? Is it live or is it Memorex? Goldblum continues to appear in big movies. He was in the latest Thor and Jurassic Park sequels. He also has his own show on the Disney Plus streaming platform. The Pennsylvania native is consistently praised in men's fashion magazines for his sartorial choices. Plus, there's his whole jazz career. His debut album was number one on the Billboard Jazz Charts the year it came out. The non-traditional career and quirky charm of the 68-year-old performer are the focus of a new biography titled Because He's Jeff Goldblum, the movie's memes and meaning of Hollywood's most enigmatic actor. I caught up with author Travis M. Andrews to find out what it is about Mr. Goldblum that's made him such a compelling celebrity over the past four and a half decades. The starting point for this book was an article Andrews originally wrote for the Washington Post a few years ago. Was it the piece you wrote for the Washington Post that kind of sparked this idea to write a biography, a more comprehensive biography about the man? It did, yeah. So the, the piece in the Washington Post came about because uh, I was sitting at work one day with my colleagues and it was announced that Goldblum was releasing this jazz album. And I didn't know he played jazz. And I kind of offhandedly asked my colleagues, who said, you know, it's interesting to me that this guy who was, you know, a huge actor in the, the late 80s and the mid 90s, kind of is still ubiquitous and still beloved by everybody. And why do you think that is? And everyone kind of responded together like a chorus because he's Jeff Goldblum. Like it should be self-evident. And my editor, uh, as editors are wont to do, told me, why don't you write about it? 
And so I wrote the piece for the Post, and then I just kept thinking about Goldblum and started watching his old movies, started listening to his music, and started thinking about the way that internet has really changed our relationship to fame and celebrity. And he just seemed like a perfect vessel to sort of put all that together. And then uh, I guess I, I wrote a book about it. Right, right. Even before I, I picked up because he's Jeff Goldblum in my head as I was like getting ready for it I was thinking of like comparisons between him and and Bill Murray who has like a special Mm -hmm. cult following here in Chicago and then you you draw some parallels between the the two what are some of the the biggest similarities and differences between the two from your point of view I think that um well first off let me say I I do remember I used to live in Chicago and I remember the the Bill Murray love (laughs) many years ago but I think that they both in their own ways took advantage of the internet I think that they are two actors who are kind of past their their heyday past their their you know necessarily their, their prime in terms of their biggest movies but they both became memes and they both kind of lived the second life online uh Bill Murray seems to do it in more intentionally he likes to you know, sneak up behind people famously and say, hi, I'm Bill Murray, no one will ever believe you, and walk away, right? He loves to, to crash bachelor parties, as he do, do, and the video goes viral. Goldblum, on the other hand, seems not like he's not seeking attention, but it doesn't feel as, as kind of specific and as, as, as planned, I suppose. Uh, people, whereas Bill Murray turns himself into a meme, Goldblum was turned into a meme by other people, and he seems to have embraced it, especially with his crazy fashion uh, choices, wearing these crazy Prada zebra print bodysuits and things like that. But, you know, I, I feel like Goldblum became a meme before we even had memes, if that makes any sense. Yeah, and you write about this more in depth in the book, but do you get a sense of when that started to shift, when he started to embrace kind of that Goldblum character? So in the book, I make the argument that it's a little-known movie called Pittsburgh. Uh, it was a half-documentary, half-mockumentary, part-fiction, part-real uh, movie that's incredibly funny, uh, that followed Goldblum at the height of his powers, going back to his hometown of Pittsburgh to be in a, a local production of The Music Man. And uh, the best part was the director of The Music Man did not want Jeff Goldblum to be in his play, <laughs> but the... The Playhouse was like, he's a famous movie star, we can sell tickets, like put him in this flight. So the movie kind of follows him going back home to Pittsburgh and seeing how people react to him and what it's like. And I felt like that movie was the first time he said, oh, I I can play with my celebrity. I can play with my kind of character here. And ever since then, I feel like directors often want him to just be himself in a movie. I think about Thor Ragnarok a lot, where Taika Waititi said, you know, just be Jeff Goldblum, but you're in a Marvel movie. And <laughs> he did exactly that. Right, right. This is the Arts Section. My name's Gary Zydek. I'm talking with author Travis M. Andrews about his new book, Because He's Jeff Goldblum. We have some jazz programming here on the station, and you know, I remember a few years ago, yeah, when I saw he was out touring, and his jazz, his album was like number one on the jazz charts. Was that something from your research? Did you find out was playing jazz and like performing as a jazz artist? Was that something on his to-do list, or how did that come about? So he has 
loved uh, he he fell in love with jazz music when he was a teenager, and he got lessons around Pittsburgh. Uh, <laughs> I actually love this. Uh, as a 15, 16 year old, he would call bars in the area and ask if they needed a piano player, not giving away his age. And if anyone said, "Yeah, we actually are looking for one," he'd show up and then be like, well, "You're you're 15. I don't, <laughs> I don't know if you can play here." But he's always loved jazz, and actually, for the past 30 or so years, he has played a weekly show in Los Angeles um, at a small club that people can go see. He just never released an album in 2016, until 2016. And even then, he didn't seem necessarily, like, he, he had to be convinced that this was a good idea to release an album. He was, uh, he was precious about putting uh, his music out and, and making sure it happened in the right way. So, a lifelong jazz fan, and that's, that's another thing I find interesting, because I feel like I feel like in the mid '90s, when he's this huge star, he could have, you know, put out a record and everyone would have bought it just because of who he was. And instead, he waits till uh, 2016 to to do it. Right. You see, sometimes actors try to go into the the music world and they use their their fame to get some additional attention. But he he took like kind of this approach where he probably didn't want to be judged too harshly from the jazz world. <laughs> I'm sure that had an awful lot to do with it. I mean, he'll readily admit he's not the greatest jazz pianist, but he has really good band. And he, one thing that I think he really likes about jazz is connected to acting. So he studied under the legendary acting teacher, Sandy Meisner, and one of uh, Meisner's classic adages is that you're only uh, interesting uh, so long as you're interested. And the idea is that when you're in a scene with another actor, uh, you are only good if you are paying attention to the other actor and really playing off the other actor um, and playing with the other actor. And that, to me, just describes how jazz music works. I mean, you you are playing with each other and off of each other uh, in a way that maybe doesn't happen with other forms of music. And I always wonder if that uh, that's something that really energizes him. Here's a classic Jeff Goldblum take on jazz lingo from an appearance on The Late Show with Stephen Colbert. I got jazz uh, enthralled. Did you pick up jazz lingo? Do you like the, are you a hip cat daddy -o? Well, I'm not a hip cat daddy -o. no. I don't, are you I don't talk so like hip, that. You're hip? I, 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 you are not as hip as you are. My friend Peter Weller, who kind of started the band with me, talks like that all the time. He says, oh yeah, I knew it from Jump Street. You know what that means? Jump Street. What does that mean? Well, from the very beginning, yeah, the I beginning. think, or from maybe yeah. way back. Yeah, from Jump John Street, knows. from the very start of it. We heard from Travis M. Andrews, the author of Because He's Jeff Goldblum. It's available everywhere books are sold. This is the arts section. I'm Gary Zydek. College of DuPage's Cleve Carney Museum of Art made waves last summer with its Frida Kahlo exhibition which featured 26 original paintings on loan from the Museo Dolores Almedo in Mexico City. The West Suburban Museum is hoping to make a similar splash next year when it presents an exhibition of another legendary artist, Andy Warhol. Thanks in part to a loan from Bank of America and a little-known College of DuPage connection to the pop icon, the Cleve Carney Museum of Art will present an all-new Warhol exhibition that will open June 3rd, 2023. I recently sat down with Mackinac Arts Center director Diana Martinez and Cleve Carney Museum curator Justin Witte to learn more about how the idea for this exhibit came together. 
Martinez says the origins can be traced back to the Kahlo exhibit, which was on display at COD in the summer of 2021. Bank of America was our sponsor for Frida, and the relationship that we've developed with them over the several years that we worked on Frida, we found out they have an incredible art collection, and they have a magnificent collection of Andy Warhols. We talked to them, and Carrie Miles, who is in charge of their collection, uh, said they have a program where they can loan that art to us. And so we thought, well, what a great follow-up to Frida Mm -hmm. is that we'll have a huge summer exhibition in the summer of 2023 and transform the Art Center once again. Now it will be a big, huge celebration of Andy Warhol and pop art all throughout the entire Art Center. Plans are already in the works to create a variety of programming that will complement the main exhibition. We're going to create, as we did for Frida, our own um, historical area in the front, a children's area, and in the back, um, convert the lakeside area to a Central Park okay. experience. And I'm working on a... Um, Studio 54 experience in one of the theaters. So we're having fun with trying to make it immersive where you can learn and it's accessible for all ages and there's all different kinds of touch points, you know, beyond the art. Yeah, I was thinking about with Frida, obviously the art was the the main attraction, these originals, but then there was all this extra additional programming. So that's that's the plan and probably a lot of, uh, in addition to what you just mentioned, some of the additional programming is still being figured out. Yes. So... The exhibition will be large again, and we have all the different exhibits that we're working through, and Justin Whitty, the curator, is working on the historical um, part, and he's working with curators at the Warhol Museum to loan the Silver Clouds exhibit, so it'll have a lot of exhibits. But what's really exciting about this year is the theaters can be open. So we can do actual programming beyond lectures on Zoom. We can do live lectures with authors and people who knew Warhol and curators from the Warhol Museum and authors who wrote books on Warhol, people who knew him. In addition, Buffalo Theater Ensemble has chosen one of their shows, which is called Andy Warhol's Tomato. So they're going to be doing that show. And I saw a show in New York called Andy Warhol on Trial. And um, a young man wrote a wonderful show, one-man show. And I'm talking to him about bringing his show here while we have the exhibit. So there'll be great wraparound programming with this exhibition. Over 35 years after his death... Warhol's legacy continues to influence contemporary art and culture. His thoughts on fame and celebrity seem especially prescient today. He was very much aware of fame and personality and did a lot to kind of craft an image. This is Cleve Carney Museum of Art curator Justin Witte. During his lifetime, he popped up in a lot of the same ways other celebrities and culture did. So if you were, you know, watching talk shows at the time, it wouldn't be unusual for Andy Warhol to be a guest, or if he's doing commercials for Apple Computer, or, you know, he was just very present in society. And I think even his look is like a stand-in for an artist, you know, kind of the, the, uh, the silver wig and the glasses and the outfit is kind of a stand-in for, um, at the time, what was a contemporary artist. But what's more interesting now is that a lot of what he did and was focused on was very predictive of our contemporary society. Like he always walked around later in life with his camera, constantly taking pictures, documenting his life like we all do now. Mm -hmm. 
Um, he was very aware of the power of fame and cultural icons, uh, something that we're even more involved with now. Um, his idea of what constituted artwork was more in line with contemporary ideas now. So, so in short answer, yeah, he's absolutely one of the most well-known uh, American artists from the last century. That's what comes to mind for me, just his, his ideas about celebrity and now the way us as a society kind of use different modes of technology. But uh, I think he's got that quote about everyone's 15 minutes of fame. and right. so kind will, will be famous for 15 minutes. And it's funny because I think that he's someone who would love... Like what we're doing now, he would love how portable technology is. I think social media would kind of be where he lived at this moment. And in a way, he was almost he was almost living kind of a social media star life ahead of the technology. He had to use the technology of the time because so much of what he was doing was reflecting, right? He was reflecting American culture in terms of its uh, obsession with fame, of wealth, of success, and the way he uh, produced his items through kind of mechanical means of production, the way he positioned himself. So he was really f reflecting the culture at large just the same way that social media reflects our culture today. So let's talk about the upcoming exhibit here at the Cleve Carney Museum of Art. It's going to include work from uh, the Bank of America program and some pieces from College of DuPage's own collection. Cleve Carney Museum um, and College of DuPage, we have in our permanent art collection over 156 photographs and eight original prints by Andy Warhol. And there's a collection that is part of this exhibit from Bank of America. And that collection is being presented under the exhibit A Life in Pop, which will be in the Cleve Carney Museum galleries. And that consists of uh, over 90 works as well to kind of cover the full career of, of Warhol. On top of that, we are, again, from the ground up, building an exhibition that will take over the Art Center that will cover Warhol's early life, his work as a commercial artist, his kind of development as a star of the pop art movement, his interest in fame and icons and even religion. And we'll also showcase our collection, which won't be in the museum galleries, but will be in other galleries throughout the Art Center. So we will have a complete exhibit just of the photographs from our collection, and the prints will be on display too. So whereas the Frida Kahlo show we had last summer was centered around this one collection we built around, this is actually a full exhibition experience that's happening throughout. There's a lot of one-of-a-kind content and exhibitions being created for this, for this experience. What's the, the story with then those pieces that are part of the museum slash colleges collection? Do you know much about how that came to be? So it started actually when my predecessor, Barbara Weissen, was the curator here. And at that time, the Andy Warhol uh, Foundation started the Andy Warhol Photographic Legacy Project. You know, I mentioned how Andy went around taking pictures all the time towards the end of his life. Some of them are actually up in this room. Mm -hmm. um, that he also kept everything. Uh, he was kind of a hoarder in a way. And when he passed away, he, all of his belongings and work and everything went to the Warhol Foundation. Um, and they had box upon box and box of these photographs. And they decided to start a legacy program in which they offered a certain amount to different institutions and colleges across the country who showed that they had the proper facilities to store them and both present them as well. 
So an application was put in to um, be one of these uh, institutions. And actually, College of DuPage, along with colleges like Yale, were given a gift of of photos from that collection, along with very clear stipulations on how it should be presented, how it should be preserved, how the work uh, should be contextualized. And then after that, the foundation came back to the school and said, would you also be interested in these um, these prints, which were non-editioned but signed prints? So non-editioned means they're not numbered, so they were either test prints um, or prints made out of a series, a run of a series of prints for your collection. We, of course, wanted those. So those were also given to us by the Andy Warhol Foundation. Again, with uh, very clear stipulations that they are only used for educational purposes, and we have to credit the foundation whenever we display them. But they're pretty phenomenal pieces, and especially in this moment where the fact that we have that many Warhols that we can add to this experience along with the Bank of America collection is going to make it really phenomenal ending up you know, with well over 200 original works in the show. And as his interest continues to rise, like he just, uh, his Maryland painting just set a record at auction for an American artist. I think it went for over $200 million. Uh, there continues to be this strong interest for his work. So to have such amazing work in our collection is such a gift that we can supplement this exhibition experience. It's going to be really fantastic. Coming off of the Frida Kahlo exhibit, the upcoming Warhol exhibition represents another feather in the cap for the Cleve Carney Museum of Art. Woody says it's thrilling to be part of the museum's evolution. I don't think I could say that, yeah, I thought within, you know, the first six years of me working here, we would do a Frida Kahlo show. But when that opportunity arose, it fit in with uh, the kind of history of the space and my approach to be open to it. And I think finding partners in the Art Center like Diana, who are also open to um, taking on those challenges and really excelling at them, has made it possible. Um, so once we, we did that show, now when it comes to Warhol, there's not any doubt that we can do it. It's more of like now a lot of thinking of what's next. How do we grow? How do we keep keep on that edge of producing these quality exhibitions that have such a broad reach? That's Justin Witte. He's the curator at the Cleve Carney Museum of Art. Earlier we heard from Mackinac Art Center director Diana Martinez. The museum's Andy Warhol exhibition will open on June 3rd, 2023 and run through September 10th of that year. But tickets will go on sale this summer on August 6th You can find more information at warhol2023.org. And that's going to wrap up this edition of the Arts Section. But remember, you can always find more arts and culture online by visiting the program's website at theartssection.org. You can find past episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand anytime you want, plus pictures and links that go along with all the features you hear on the program. My name is Gary Zydek. I hope you'll join me again next Sunday morning at 8 a.m. right here on 90.9 and 90.7 FM for another edition of the Arts Section. Until then, I hope you have a great week. Happy Easter, happy Passover, happy Ramadan to all those celebrating. Thanks for listening. 